Well, my name's Jared, and uh, for those of us that are meeting for the first time, it's really a pleasure to meet you. We're glad that you're here at Evergreen today, and you came uh, at a great, great day. Hey, I want to talk with you about uh, a subject today that is absolutely where all of us live right now, all of the time in American culture. And I think today you're going to gain some really interesting insight And if you have a pulse today, and if you still have one when I'm done talking after a while, you're going to leave probably with some new options for how to live life. Are you ready for that? Yeah. Well, it was September the 8th, 2008. The Bernie Madoff sons, Mark and Andrew, heard a confession from their dad that his investment firm was a sham in his quotes, a total lie, end quote. Bernie Madoff had founded in the 1970s what became a large investment firm, which was nothing more than a huge Ponzi scheme that scammed thousands of investors. When the auditors did the research, they discovered that $65 billion in client accounts were actually sham accounts. Bernie Madoff... Uh, chose to plead guilty to a variety of charges. He's now in prison, serving a 150-year prison sentence, the longest that could be legally given to him. And then there's his sons, Mark and Andrew. Mark committed suicide exactly two years after his father's arrest. Andrew died of leukemia a few days ago, this month, on September the 3rd. And just before Andrew died, he said, and I quote, one way to think about this, the scandal and everything that happened, it killed my brother very quickly and it's killing me slowly. Even on my deathbed, I will never forgive my dad for what he did. He's already dead to me. Hmm. A story of greed. It absolutely destroys. Today we finish our fall series about the evergreen way God gather group and give. And we're going to be talking today about the two sides of the giving coin. We're going to be talking first about greed and then about generosity. Tim Keller, who's a respected pastor in New York, wrote these words. I love that. He said, Jesus warns people far more often about greed than about sex. Yet almost no one thinks that they're guilty of it. End quote. It really is true. In fact, uh, pastors that have done series on the seven deadly sins... When they talk about gluttony, you know, most of us know, uh, I'm included in this group, the two-thirds of us are uh, technically overweight or obese. And so we show up, you know, on the gluttony one. The lust one, we show up because some of the people that we know the best definitely have that problem, right? But historically, when, when the message is greed, you know, no one shows up because, well, if I'd ask you the question, Dan, how many, would you describe for me some greedy people? Dan would do what what I would do. He'd say, well, that Bernie Madoff guy you're talking about, he's sure greedy. And then you might come up with two or three other greedy people, right? Guess who's never on the top five list? You, me. Greed is just not something we deal with. A few really nasty people are greedy people. 
I hope actually you find yourself in to the story today because we discover that more isn't always better. We're going to see how greed affects and destroys our lives and how generosity actually builds us up and sets us free. So Dan, Coach Dan, we're talking, this Dan, we're talking today about both sides of the ball here. We're going to play some defense, first of all. We're going to play some offense. And it is interesting to me that the Bible is equally clear about both of those. Folks, have you discovered that if you choose not to play defense, that the other team tends to score quite easily, time after time after time? Here's the deal. Jesus says, be on guard against greed. Why would Jesus have defensive guards unless greed was after to get them? Here's the deal. We've got to talk about defense against greed, and then we're going to go to the offensive side. So let's first of all define what greed is. Webster didn't know him well, but he helps us out here. He says, greed is a selfish and excessive desire for more than is needed. Hmm. Our arch rival, greed. Imagine a dry sponge, a bucket of water. You take the sponge, you plunge it in the water, you stick it in the bottom. It still has some air bubbles trapped. You squeeze the sponge. You let go, still submerged. The sponge is absolutely saturated with water. You bring it to the surface. For most uses, the sponge isn't very useful until what? You squeeze some of the water out. And then it can be useful. And then you submerge it back in. Here's the deal. Greed is like a sponge that is absolutely saturated and shouts more more, more. Yeah. Not helpful for anything. More stuff, more money. Now, is it wrong to want more? This is a good question. And I hope the answer is not always because I want more of some stuff. But is desire sin? Do I, if I want food and clothes for my body and a roof over my head, is, is there something wrong with that? When does desire become excessive and greedy? That's my question. Now, some people would argue that greed is actually a natural and beneficial thing. Some of you have heard this speech. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies. It cuts through and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all its forms, greed for life, greed for money, greed for love, greed for knowledge, has marked the upward surge of humankind. End quote, says Gordon Gecko, Michael Douglas's character in Wall Street. Unless you just shine that on as some goofy Hollywood script, let me mention that a famous 18th century philosopher and economist named Adam Smith believed that pretty much. He believed that when an individual pursues her self-interest, she actually benefits society more than if she had intended to directly pursue the self-interest of society. And our general economic system is built on that philosophy. Hmm. Self-interest benefits everyone. Scottish philosopher David Hume suggested that without greed, the economy and all human progress would grind to a halt. And if you're not convinced yet, you will appreciate the great philosopher Donald Trump. 
who said, you can't be too greedy. Go Donald. Yeah. So is greed good? We actually live in a culture with an economic system that counts on us being relatively greedy. Is it, in fact, the engine of economic process, progress, or is greed a ruinous form of idolatry? These are very different points of view. And I find myself right in the middle of the story. So let's go back to our definition of greed. Greed is a selfish and excessive desire for more than is needed. Obviously, desire is not wrong. I want clothes. And I certainly want for you to wear clothes. A couple of years ago, Ann and I inadvertently stumbled into the naked bike ride uh, downtown Portland. Trust me, there was nothing attractive or pretty about that. I want you to wear clothes. I desire for you to wear clothes. Many desires are good. Let me... But where is that fine line that tips over into excessive, more than in what's needed? You see, greed is simply good desire that's taken to an excessive extreme. That's why we have to go to the Bible to discover how God thinks about this thing of greed. And then we're going to play offense to see how to counteract that with generosity. So let's ask the question, why is greed sin? And let me list a few reasons from the Bible. And if you're a note taker today, what I encourage you to jot down are various Bible passages. I'm going to read through several verses today from different places. You can go back and do your own study on your own. The first reason is that greed is a sin against yourself. It ruins you. A greedy person is an unhappy person, never satisfied, never has enough, and never stops to enjoy what she actually already has. Have you ever just said, if I could just have this, I would be happy? Sure, we all have. And then you get it, and you're happy for a little bit until the next new shiny thing comes out. I six, iPhone 6 come to mind here. I don't, none of you are guilty except Kay Green and me. Kay's not here, so I can mention her name today. And the 6 came out last week, and... I looked at my five and it had a little glitch, one little problem. And I said to Ann, look at that. They've just designed this thing to go out. I need to go get my six right here. Just, I'll be a little bit happier if I get the six. Some of you understand that operating system upgrades don't necessarily make you happier too. That's another story. But we've all been there. If I just had that, if I just got the raise, the promotion, the boyfriend, the girlfriend, the husband, the kid, the whatever it is, and we discover it's an empty pursuit. Yeah. That's why Jesus warns us and tells us to play defense. This is what he says in Luke 12. Watch out, he says. Be on guard. Dan, I love that because I was a big kid and they made me play guard. Then they told me that offensive guards were the smartest guys on the team. That's what they still tell them, isn't it? Yeah. You lie, don't you? You coaches, you lie. Yeah. Watch out, Jesus says, be on guard. Now, I want you to know something. Notice this. Jesus is generally very positive. There are very few things that he tells you to play defense about because he wants us to play offense with him almost all the time. But in this matter, if you don't play guard, you're going to get crumpled by the arch rival. Jesus said, watch out. 
be on guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions, end quote. Here it is. Life is more than the sum total of your stuff and your accounts. Greed reduces your life to the total of the stuff that you've collected. Paul puts it this way when he writes in 1 Timothy, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Anybody thinking of Bernie Madoff? Yeah. Second, greed is a sin against your neighbor. When you're having more than enough means he has less than he needs. Now, this is pretty obvious when it's somebody that's across the street. It's much less obvious, especially for we Americans, when it's somebody who's halfway around the world. And we probably should consider today, every person in this room, regardless of your debt load and regardless of your income, that you are in the highest echelons of wealthy people in the world. And we as Americans, about 6% of the world's population, consume about one-third of everything that's consumed, of the world's goods each year. We must ask ourselves how our consumption affects others. Greed can not only take, cause us to take more than our fair share, it can cause us to be unwilling to share when we have the opportunity. John wrote about this in what we call 1 John. He says, I quote, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Wow. Pretty strong words, aren't there? If you see another in need and you don't step up to the plate, God's love isn't in you. That's what he says. Because when God's love is in us, it shows up in actions and specifically in the act of helping someone who's in need. Well, this is tough stuff. Let's, let's keep moving on. Third, greed is the cause of conflict. <laughs> this is what James writes to a nice Christian church. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, you don't get it. You kill and you covet, but you can't get what you want. You quarrel and you fight. Hmm. Isn't it true that if you went backwards in most wars that you would find greed as their starting point, or if you trace most personal conflicts that you have had, you can find money at the starting point. Didn't someone once say, follow the, say it with me, money? Yeah. Fourth, greed is a sin against our world. And it's a sin that threatens to destroy our planet. Economies that are driven by unbridled comp uh, consumption lead to the depletion of God's beautiful earth. 
Over half the forests of the world have been destroyed. In the next 20 years, another third of those will be destroyed. A third of the world's coral reefs have been destroyed or seriously damaged. And much of that has happened within the generations that are represented in this room. What does it mean to be God's caretakers over his world that he attributed to the first man and woman? Well, God actually even prescribed ways for whole cultures to live as good stewards in their generation of the earth. God commanded the Israelites that they were to care for the land that they lived in. And one of the things that they were to do as, uh, as farmers was that they were to give the land a Sabbath every seventh year. And God told them in advance in Leviticus, if you don't give the, the land its rest, I will exile you away from it and I'll let it get a break with you being gone before I return you. In fact, this is what he said in Leviticus 26. All the time that it lies desolate, the land will have the rest it did not have during the Sabbaths you lived in it. That's a reminder for us in our generation. This is not our world. It is our Father's world. And he has given us stewardship of it, to be blessed by it and to care for it. Greed destroys our world. Fifth, greed is a sin against God. Greed's idolatry. It's, it means worshiping something other than God, a false God. Paul writes to the church at Colossae in chapter 3 saying, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and I would say, and many of us are saying, you bad people, stop doing that. And then he gets us all. And greed, which is idolatry. Wow. How is greed idolatry? Well, the greedy worship something other than God. Greed tries to satisfy with things. In the Old Testament, idolatry was the worship of a statue. In our culture, idolatry is the worship of stuff and money. And sixth, aren't you glad, coach, that there's only six things that we have to be on guard for? But number six, and here we go, and we wrap up greed, is that greed keeps us from God. You remember the story. It's told in Luke chapter 18 about a rich young guy, and he came to Jesus with sincerity, and he said, I want to follow you. And Jesus said, great. And now I quote, you still lack one thing. Go sell everything you have, give to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. And then, come follow me. And when he heard this, he became sad because he was a man of great wealth. Hmm. What kept this young man from following Jesus? Greed. Given the choice of God or money, he sadly chose money. Greed kept him from God. So, in summary, sin, greed is a sin against yourself, your neighbor, your world, and God. And so when we find ourselves being drawn into it, we fight back, we play defense, we take Jesus at his word, 
be on guard against every kind of greed. And so you ask the question, what's the best way to play offense? How can I be the one winning over greed? I'm glad you asked that question. Let's flip to the other side of the game plan and discover from God's word about generosity, which classically has been considered the absolute opposite of greed. But first, let me tell you a story. I don't know if you know Millard Fuller. He was a millionaire before he turned 30. And he pursued every new business opportunity that might make him money. And he made a lot. He didn't take time to stop and enjoy what he had earned. And finally, his wife, Linda, told him one day, I, she had had enough, and she was leaving, and she was divorcing him. His world came crashing in, and shocked, he took some time to reflect and evaluate his life. And in doing so, he discovered that he was pursuing stuff to fill a void that he believed that only God could fill. And so he committed his life to Jesus Christ, and he sold his businesses and almost all of his possessions And he and his wife, Linda, decided to launch a life of being generous to the poor. Hmm. Now, I don't know if you know his name, but my guess is that you're familiar with the organization that he founded, Habitat for Humanity, which as of today has built or reconstructed over 800,000 homes worldwide. Bernie Madoff... Millard Fuller, two guys just like you and me, they're just a little more famous, who faced a point in their life of making a decision about what they were going to do in the great battle that all of us experience internally around greed or generosity. Let's see what it looks like to play generous offense. First of all, to be generous is to be liberal in giving. Jesus has some things to say about that. And if you're a married person or if you've been married, you've probably learned that you and your husband or wife are not always exactly on the same page when it comes to generosity. Any of you there? It's a rhetorical question. Don't vote on that right now. It would not be kind. So Anne and I will tell our story. This is hilarious to me. We've known each other for 46 years. We've been married for 36 years. And I consider myself a pretty generous person. But Anne is a gifted, generous person. And it still works. 99.5% of the time, she'll tell you, when we both agreed that it's the right place and the right time to give something, and have any of you not been agreed about that, it's quite agreement to come to that place, right? We're actually going to give something. And then we both go and we pray and we think about it and we come back to report the number that has come to mind. My number is always one half of Ann's number. <laughs> Dean, always one half of Ann's number. In fact, even when I take my number and double it, so I can get ahead of the game, it's still one half of Ann's number. She trumps me, not the Donald kind, 100%, 95% of the time. Yeah. So 
deciding when to whom and how much to give is the fodder for many wonderful couples' fights. I'm not giving you advice there, but I'm just acknowledging that. And I'm telling you that one of the things that I've discovered is that it probably, when there is confusion, often is the wise thing to do the generous thing. And I think I have some wonderful support for that, not just the little stories from our life. Let's take a look at what Jesus says. Let's start with Matthew chapter 5. He said, Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Matthew 6. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets. Your Father, who sees what's done in secret, he will reward you. Matthew 19. Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. Luke says it this way, Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus has some advice. Give, give already. There's no better way to overcome greed than to give. One of the ways, reasons generosity is so effective in trumping greed is that when I'm greedy, I'm aware of myself. But when I'm giving, I'm aware of others. And I discover in that the joy of sharing. So here's some practical advice. When you find yourself feeling greedy, that's the perfect time to fight back. Give. Okay, I get it, Jared. I'm going to have to guard against greed because it's where we all live. And the truth of the matter is, I'm one of the greedier people on the planet. And I really want to follow Christ-likeness in generosity. The truth is, I've made significant movement in that direction. But I, like all of us, have a long way to go. I get that. But, Jared, what makes it so difficult for me to make those courageous choices to be generous is, well, I don't know how you fill in the blank, but I know what mine is. It's fear. Afraid that I will not have enough. I've looked at the budget. There's not room for that. I've looked at the debt load. I have some regret because I wish I wouldn't have bought those toys with that debt, but I've got to service the debt. I'm afraid that there might be an opportunity that's going to come next week that I won't be able to meet because what is it? It's a fear of not having enough. I think that's why when Jesus talks about giving, that he often links it with the word fear or the encouragement, don't be afraid. In Luke chapter 12, he tells us, listen, don't be afraid to be generous because God will provide. And when he talks in Luke 12, he teaches about worry when he's talking about generosity. And he says, I don't want you to worry about food or clothing or shelter Because you have a father who knows what you need and is committed to caring for you. And I quote from verse uh, verse 31. But seek his kingdom and all these things, the stuff we need, will be given to you as well. Now notice, don't be afraid, little flock. He knows what keeps us from generosity. 
because your father is pleased to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions and give to the poor and provide purses that won't wear out and treasure in heaven that won't be exhausted where no thief comes near and no moth destroys for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. A better investment than the Dow, which dropped 262 points Friday. Why do I know that? Because I do. My stuff there got moth-eaten and rusty on Friday. That's what happened. Jesus said, don't be afraid. Why? Because that's what keeps us from generosity. But if I give, I might. Mm. If we seek his kingdom, he'll take care of us. That's what he says. So you can be generous because God is generous with you all through the Bible. That's foundational for why we're called to be generous because he is generous to us. And it starts with his love. John writes in 1 John 4, we love because he, say it with me, first loved us. Yeah, we give because we have a father who loves us, who cares for us. Don't be afraid to be generous. That's what the Bible says. In the Old Testament, in Malachi chapter 3, this is fun, verse 10, it says, give and you won't have less, but you'll have more than you need. I quote, bring the whole tithe tithe, into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you'll not have room for it. If that wasn't in the Bible, I would be scared to talk like that. Because you know that when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, and he was tempted to test God, what what did Jesus say? You shall not test the Lord your God. There's one exception in the entire Bible. In thousands of years of God speaking to his people, one exception. And it has to do with giving money. And God said, test me. I dare you to test me in this. I dare you to test me. He said to these people, because God had prescribed for his folks and his community there, that they were to give a tithe, the tenth of the stuff that they had earned, and then that there were offerings that they gave throughout the year in addition to the tithe. And he told them to bring it into the storehouse. There was the temple kind of a deal there. And in the 5th century BC, in Malachi's time, exiles had returned to Jerusalem, but they hadn't reinvigorated this practice of tithing and giving offerings. And this was the word of the Lord to them. You don't have to be afraid. You can put me to the test. If you give me what I've told you is mine to be returned, you will test me and what you will experience is, and here's the word again, it's poor. It's opening the floodgates. That's quite a picture, isn't it? The same word Jesus used. Pressed down, shaken together, running over, pour back into you. God says, put me to the test. And why? Because he is a good and generous father. Jesus said, you give to get, to give, to get, and so on. Give and it'll be given. Pressed down, shaken together, running over, poured back into your lap. That's quite a picture. Poured out blessings for you. Hmm. So let me ask, if you don't tithe, why not? I'm betting it's the same thing that keeps me from being generous. Fear. Fear that you won't have enough to pay the bills, that you'll be missed out on something. Hey, Jesus said this way, don't be afraid. 
Don't be afraid. You've got a father who's generous and will outgive you every time. Paul writes a letter to the church at Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he talks about an offering that they had promised to give and were struggling to come good on their intentions. And I quote, he says, And notice the word all and every. This is fun. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, will abound in every good work. And you will be made rich in every way, so you can be generous on every occasion. All grace, all things, all times, always, every good work. Listen, don't be afraid to give. God is generous. He's got you covered all over. That's Paul's promise. When you're generous, God makes you rich in every way so that you can continue to be generous. You give and you receive and you give again and you receive again and on and on it goes. And we're going to end with a last verse in Philippians 4, which tells us why when giving stops, it's always on our part, never God's part. Here's why. My God, Paul says, will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in who? Christ Jesus. God will not stop giving your way until all of the riches in Christ Jesus run out. And guess when that's going to be? So if it dries up, it dries up because we have stopped the process. Hmm, don't be afraid. Be generous. Be generous with money and, hmm, let me ask you a question. If you didn't have any fear, what would you give? Give money? Give time? Give grace? Give forgiveness? Give joy? Give relationship? Of course. Because generosity has to do with everything God has given to us. When Peter and John were stopped by a guy who was crippled, at a temple gate, the guy asked for money. And Peter says, I don't have any money to give you, but, but I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ. And he just gave the guy what had been given to him from Jesus. In that case, it was healing. Don't be afraid to be generous. So how is it that evergreeners give around here? So what's the evergreen way? There's lots of ways to apply as a community what we've talked about today, how to stand against greed and how to, how to be play offense with generosity. But what's the evergreen way to do that? Well, we give around here in a couple of ways. We give income. Uh, out of our income, we give a tithe. Evergreeners give a tithe. They give 10%. And then there's opportunities for offerings as well. And that money is used to fund what we do in expanding God's kingdom here near and far. For every baby that is born this year, about, you know, the 25 or however that we uh, have heard that might be born, that's going to be an investment of Evergreen of about $100 a month. That's kind of how we care for babies and little kids and students and we old people as well. And money that is given here collectively is used to invest here and near and far. 
Secondly, Evergreeners give from net worth. From time to time, there are special projects or opportunities. And some of you have given very generously recently and over the years by dipping into savings that you have had. And other Evergreeners put uh, generous giving into their wills or their trusts. When Anna and I got married at 23, we uh, had a, a will made. And that was awkward, wasn't it, Anne? You know, we're in love, we're married, we're invincible, we're never going to die. And uh, one of the two of us made her uh, cooperate with him and have a will made. And that was kind of an awkward moment. We love each other, we're going to die. Let's talk about that now. So uh, we did it, and we didn't have kids yet, and we wrote a will that could have some flexibility for if God blesses with children, which he did. But we, in that will, at 23 years of age, designated a portion of our estate to be given to a church that was a very meaningful church in our life. Now, had we both died at 23, the church would have been surprised that we had thought of them and they wouldn't have been very helped. (laughs) You understand? But that's one of the ways Evergreeners give. And third, Evergreeners give time. As volunteers in kids' ministry and with youth and, and sharing times and talents and treasure and being a part of groups and gathering and giving generously and being engaged in the community, Evergreeners give of time, treasure, and talent. So how do we do that? What's our game plan? Well, we're old school. We pass a basket that goes past uh, every week. And we do that not only because it's a tradition of the church, but many of you like to give that way. And you either give a check or you... uh, put cash in an envelope there, and it's actually a a wonderful, meaningful experience, tangible experience as part of your worship and giving. Some of you feel awkward about that because it's not quite anonymous enough, and there's a box right between the doors going into the lobby where you stick an envelope there. Many of you give uh, by... uh, uh, Pay bill, you set that up on one of your accounts. And just like paying bills that you have, you uh, include Evergreen and at a regular time or times during the month, a check is sent to Evergreen. Many of you pay online. And I, I mention that because we invite that and encourage, but some of you don't know that when you pay online, it costs us about 3% of your gift to go for merchant services. And some of you just knowing that would prefer to shift over to bill pay because the 100% of your check that comes to Evergreen gets to go to Evergreen and we don't need to pay the online fees. But we give in a variety of ways. You give time to, or you give money to friends that are in groups and help with mission trips and personal needs. And we give time, time to participate. And when we give a participation in groups or in volunteering, sometimes that's more difficult for some of us than giving money, isn't it? Because we dip into that very busy schedule. So let me close with this. So what are you afraid of? Don't be afraid, Jesus says. Take the step. What's your next step of generosity? Coach Dan, I picked on you today. Check it out. It's a good thing you caught that because it wasn't throwing all that well. That's right. Dan, I want the ball back. I I want the ball back, Dan. I do want the ball back. Thank you very much. Oh, my goodness. So, Dan, as uh, one of the coaches at Glencoe, and thank you, Dan, and thank you for all the others that serve in our schools and serve kids and youth in our communities and beyond. That's just a great, great thing. Dan, what I've been told about quarterbacks, did I mention that I wasn't a quarterback? Yes. Did I mention that I wasn't a receiver? Yes. I did, didn't I? Yeah, I proved it. That's right. 
Yeah. So what I've been told is the quarterbacks who are very important to the game are generally only successful if they get rid of the ball very quickly after they've received it. That's how they play offense. When the ball is hiked by the center, the quarterback gets it. And what I have been told, that if the quarterback is going to hand the ball off, it probably should be a play that develops fairly quickly. That's what I've been told. And I watched a couple of games yesterday on TV, and there was one particular quarterback in the Pac-12, and I won't mention who it was, but he is an, an outstanding passer. But the team he was playing against found a way to close the pocket. And when he did not get rid of the ball quick enough, he found himself sacked for a horrible loss. Because the way you play offense in this game is you've got to get rid of the ball. How are you going to get rid of the ball? Don't be a soppy sponge. Let God squeeze some of that good stuff out to bless others and to make room for more. Don't be a greedy American. When God hikes the ball to you and the amazing, generous blessing that all of us experience, even as indebted and overbusy folks, folks, let's get real. The question is how, how fast will you get rid of the ball? Make room for the next play. Take the tithe challenge for the next few months. Hey, if you don't tithe, do it. Test God. In fact, God's taking the risk out of it. But you say, yeah, but God's not here. I'll take the risk out of it. If you don't tithe and decide to give 10% of your income to Evergreen the next three months, and if God hasn't fulfilled his promise to you, just check in with me. We'll refund 100% of your giving. Now, there's not much risk involved for me, is there? Because that really is on God. But that's exactly the tithe challenge that he gave to folks in the Old Testament. Some of you are going to take a courageous step going into this fall, and you're going to say, I'm going to beat my fear with taking a step. Some of you are going to go out and you're going to sign up for Financial Peace University because you want to be generous, and it's painful for you that your life is so filled with financial grief. Maybe you're too indebted or whatever that you really want to give attention to your finances in ways that will allow God to breathe and move in your finances. Financial Peace University, Ann and I have been through it. We can't speak highly enough of it. It's going to start in a couple of weeks. It's nine consecutive evenings. Find time in your schedule. Be a part of Financial Peace. And some of you, hey, all of us, let's check out at least three groups at the group fair today and try three of them on for size over the next couple of weeks. You're going to find a new place for you to give generously of your time. And you're going to open some doors for God doing some great things as well. Let's pray.